You are listening to a message from the Living Word community in Center City, Philadelphia. We are followers of Jesus Christ, called to love God and love people, to share Jesus and help people experience true life change that can only come from knowing Him. We hope that you enjoy this message today. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be together this morning to worship the Lord together and to look at his word together to hear from each other. As you're probably gathering, we have been reading through the book of Job together. And in a lot of different ways, Job is very challenging. Um, It's very challenging to track with the extended speeches that make up the bulk of the book. You may find yourself in the middle of a speech from one of Job's friends or even from Job himself, and you may realize, I'm not really sure where this point started and how we got to the point where we are, and you may actually have to go back and reread from the start of that speech. And if you're like me, sometimes you actually have to go back three or four times and still not 100% sure you're following the metaphor or the logic or the point that is trying to be made. But another reason why the book of Job is incredibly challenging is because of the nature of what it deals with. We look at uh, the Lord's servant Job and we see what happens to him. And that's a very disturbing set of circumstances. That's a very troubling set of circumstances. And so for many of us, that hits very close to home in trying to understand the Lord, in trying to understand how he deals with humanity, in trying to understand how he wants us to look at him and look at how he runs his universe. I've had actually a lot of either email exchanges or conversations or combinations of the both the last couple of weeks in regard to the book of Job, which is excellent because I think as we as a community read the book of Job together, the Lord is challenging us to really press into the book, to really press into him, and to really seek to grow in our understanding of him, to grow in our understanding of his word And of course, more than anything, to grow in our understanding of how he deals with humanity. Because that really is one of the key issues of the book of Job. The God that we know created the universe. The God that we know who is sovereign over all of the universe. How does he deal with humanity? And what are we to understand about him from how he deals with humanity? That is one of the real central issues of the book of Job. So when you have someone like Job who is declared to be righteous, who is declared to be godly, who is declared to be on God's side in every way possible in the opening of the book, when you see this set of devastating circumstances happen to him, all of us as as readers and followers of the book of Job and studying the person of Job are challenged. You know, Lord, why did you allow this to happen? Lord, why did this incredible, incredible tragedy and suffering and anguish come upon someone who was serving you. And so that really is one of the main themes that we are trying to unpack together. So again, I would encourage you to continue to email each other, text each other, talk to each other, bring issues up, because I believe as a community, as we are reading a similar passage or the same passage of scripture together, there is opportunity for that interchange and that exchange And that's part of how the Lord gives us wisdom and gives us understanding. So let me open our time with the word of prayer, and then we're going to actually read some specific passages from the conversation that Job had with his 
three friends. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you so much for giving us this time together today. We thank you so much for your willingness to be in our midst, to speak to us, to speak through us, to encourage us, to strengthen us, to provide us everything that we need to grow in our understanding of you, to grow in our relationship with you, to encourage one another to do the same, just to be in fellowship with you and to be in fellowship with each other. We're grateful now for an opportunity to continue to consider and read and examine the words that you have recorded for us in the book of Job. And we do thank you for your servant and our brother, Job, who endured so much and who serves as an example to us of patience and perseverance. And God, we pray that you would help us to rightly understand both what he said and what his friends said. And Lord, you realize that for many of us, that's not the easiest thing to do. And so we pray, Lord God, for your help. We just got through reading the book of Proverbs, and Proverbs repeatedly said, Lord, that if we desired wisdom, if we sought wisdom, if we pursued it more diligently and zealously than anything else, that wisdom would be found. And as we read the book of Job, at least I know I have, been very much reminded of that challenge that you gave us in the book of Proverbs. And so I pray, Lord, that each one of us would really be diligently pursuing your wisdom, would be diligently pursuing to understand you better through the book of Job, because we realize, Lord, that the rewards are beyond understanding. The rewards of pursuing you, of seeking you, of desiring to know you, grow in our understanding of you, nothing can compare with that. As Proverbs said, not even rubies or silver or gold or the most precious things of this life can compare with the beauty and the, the precious and invaluable nature of knowing you, of understanding you, and fearing you and being able to walk in your ways. So help us in this time that we are about to spend together right now as we continue to consider Job. Just help us, Lord God, to know your heart. And Jesus, it is in your name, in your name alone, that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Well, turn with me, if you have not already, to the book of Job. And if you are following along in the daily reading schedule, today is actually Job chapter 11. Job chapter 11. Last week, Ted Lewis gave an excellent summary of the book of Job. And the majority of the book of Job is sort of an ongoing conversation between Job and three of his friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And then at the end of three cycles of conversations back and forth between Joab, excuse me, between Job and his three friends, then a fourth character, uh, Elihu or Elihu, enters the stage and concludes the human dialogue. Now, one of the things that has become clear to me over the years is that as you are reading this extended section of Job chapters 3 to 37, you are simply hearing human counsel. You are hearing human wisdom. And so part of what makes this conversation between Job and his friends and Elihu at the end so challenging is we don't always know what to believe and what to reject. One of the things that's, in, at least for me, been incredibly helpful as I've studied Job over the years is to sneak ahead to Job 42, which Ted did last week. 
And what we see there is the Lord's evaluation of what Job's three friends said. And what he simply says is that they did not speak rightly of me. So as you are reading the speeches of Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, you will see in what they say some things that sound like solid, orthodox, biblical worldview. But ultimately, at the end, what the Lord says is that those three did not speak rightly of me. So what I like to do is to use that as a grid, a framework, or a magnifying glass. As I go back and read the speeches of Job's three friends, I have the Lord's evaluation. And the Lord says, those three, they did not speak rightly of me. Now, in chapter 38, the object of the Lord's rebuke, of course, is Job. And Job gets quite an earful as the Lord finally shows up. But again, in chapter 42, the Lord says, but Job did speak rightly of me. So even though Job crosses a line, even though Job goes a bit too far in his demands upon the Lord, ultimately, in the end, he spoke rightly of the Lord. So that helps me again to evaluate Job's speeches. One of the enigmas of the book of Job, or one of the many enigmas, is God makes no comment about Elihu or Elihu, the fourth of Job's friends. So we really don't know for sure how to evaluate his speech because the Lord doesn't give us his evaluation of that speech. But what we do see in the book of Job is that by the time we get to Job chapter 38, we are longing for the voice of the Lord because we have now read 34 chapters of human conversation. And I don't know about you, but many times human conversation wears me out and I just don't have any more energy for it. And I absolutely honestly believe it is the Lord's intention for each one of us to be worn out by the time we get to the end of chapter 37. I really believe that. I believe part of the strategies of how the book of Job is put together is for us as the reader to be longing for the voice of the Lord. I've heard enough human perspective. I've heard enough human effort to try to make sense of what is going on. What I really need to hear is the voice of the Lord. What I really need to hear is what the Lord says. And finally, in chapter 38, the Lord breaks through and the Lord speaks. But as you are reading and as you are getting to very slowly, because today is chapter 11, so we're 26 days away from Job 38. But that is part of the process. Don't rush it. That's part of how the book of Job speaks to us. Don't rush it. Let those human voices continue to grapple with what is going on. Let those human voices continue to wrestle with what they think they know to be true about God versus the experience that they are encountering. Don't rush it. You know chapter 38 is coming, and chapter 38 is glorious. But don't rush there. Don't rush there. Let the bulk of the book of Job accomplish God's purposes in each of our hearts as we look at Job and his three friends and his fourth friend wrestle with what was going on. But remember that above all else, we need the wisdom of the Lord. We need the perspective of the Lord. We need the evaluation of the Lord. So Job crossed a line, but he did speak rightly of the Lord. And in the end, he is rebuked initially, but ultimately commended. Job's three friends did not speak rightly of the Lord. 
And in the end, they are rebuked, and it is only because of the intercession of Job that the Lord will receive any offering from them again. So use that as you evaluate these very lengthy uh, conversations and dialogue. So let's look at a little bit of what each of Job's three friends said in their opening response to Job. Remember, they hear of the calamity and the tragedy that has befallen Job. They sit with him in silence for seven days. Job opens in his mouth in chapter 3 and, and, and bemoans the day of his birth, wishes that he had been stillborn, wishes that he had been, never been born. I mean, really, really graphic and unsettling, uh, disturbing despair that Job is giving voice to. But of course, when you look at the situation in which he finds himself, um, hard to imagine how there weren't uh, a lot of moments like that. But then in chapter 4, the first of Job's three friends, Eliphaz, offers some response, offers some counsel to Job, and tries to evaluate, tries to understand how someone as godly and as righteous as Job was could experience such tragic circumstances. So let's just read a couple verses from Eliphaz's first speech in Job chapter 4, verses 7 to 9. And we're going to be actually reading a lot of different passages of Scripture today. We're going to start in Job, but then we're going to jump to Proverbs, then we're going to jump to the New Testament, and then we're actually going to end with a proverb. So as Ted said, be ready to do a lot of flipping. So Job chapter 4, verses 7 to 9, part of the speech of Eliphaz. Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed those who plow evil and those who sow trouble, reap it. At the breath of God, they are destroyed. At the blast of his anger, they perish. So at this point, what is Eliphaz saying? Eliphaz, if we were given that speech in a very different context, seems to be saying some things that we all hold to be true. In fact, if you look at verse 8, he basically says that you reap what you sow. Verse 8, he says, look, if you have plowed evil, if you have reaped or if you have sown trouble, that's what you reap. Well, if you go to Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, that's exactly what Paul, the Apostle Paul says. He says, look, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. You reap what you sow. So again, on the surface, what Eliphaz is saying seems to be in line with orthodox biblical worldview. There are consequences for the decisions that you make. What you, what you sow, what you plant, what you do determines what happens to you determines what you reap, determines your harvest. And again, this is an agricultural metaphor. If you plant apple seeds, you will get an apple tree. If you plant barley seeds, you will get barley plants. God has embedded in creation this simple and incredibly powerful spiritual metaphor. You reap what you sow. So basically, that's what Eliphaz is declaring here. Eliphaz is declaring biblical truth as far as it goes in this case. You reap what you sow. And if you sow evil, if you sow wickedness, if you sow disobedience, then you will reap a consequence for that. So 
when you really consider what Eliphaz is saying, and he is looking at the unbearable suffering that Job is enduring, he's basically saying that, Job, this must have come upon you because of something you did. Because God is just. God is just in how he governs his universe. He doesn't punish the innocent, but he does, in fact, punish the wicked. Clearly, because of your circumstance, you are being punished. And because of that, it is reasonable to assume that you have sinned, that you have disobeyed. So that is the initial, at least part of the initial argument that Eliphaz makes in helping Job to understand his circumstance. Let's turn now to Job chapter 8. Eliphaz has finished his first speech. Job has given a response to Eliphaz's first speech. And now in Job chapter 8, Bildad gives his first speech. And again, we are only going to read a couple of verses from this. In Job chapter 8, let's look at verse 4. It says, When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. So Bildad is basically using the same reasoning that Eliphaz used, which again is a sound biblical doctrine in certain contexts. You reap what you sow. Remember, not only did Job suffer excruciating loss in terms of material possessions and excruciating physical discomfort in terms of the skin affliction he had, but he lost his ten children. And Bildad just simply says this obviously happened because they sinned, because God punishes the sinner. Those who are sinful and sow sinfulness reap the just punishment for that. So clearly, Job, your children sinned, and that's why God punished them in accordance with their sin. Jumping down to a little bit further in this speech of Bildad, picking it up in verse 11, and this is one of these places where Bildad uses a metaphor. I'm not sure I completely understand it, but I'm going out on a limb and going to read this anyways. But uh, picking it up in verse 11. Can papyrus grow taller where there is no marsh? Can reeds thrive without water? While still growing and uncut, they wither more quickly than grass. Such is the destiny of all who forget God so perishes the hope of the godless. What he trusts in is fragile. What he relies on is a spider's web. He leans on his web, but it gives way. He clings to it, but it does not hold. So he begins by talking about reed plants and marsh plants and how they cannot grow without water. So in other words, if a reed plant or a, 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 a marsh plant is flourishing, there must be plenty of water. But if you take that water away, it quickly, almost overnight, dries up and dies. And so it is, this is the key, in verse uh, 13, such is the destiny of all who forget God so perishes the hope of the godless. Then he goes on to say their strong foundation is like a spider's web. Now if you're hanging over the edge of a cliff and looking for something to grab to pull yourself up, don't grab a spider's web. You will be very disappointed 
Or if you are hiking on a trail and you're tumbling down a rocky, rocky slope and you're looking for something to grab to break your fall, don't reach for a spider's web because you will be very disappointed. So in other words, Bildad is basically coming at Job very much the same way that Eliphaz was and saying, look, if there was plenty of water, you would be flourishing, but you have dried up. You have suffered incredible loss. You obviously were depending on something that was ungodly, like a spider's web, and that's why you are experiencing everything that you're experiencing. So again, much like Eliphaz, Bildad is saying to Job, these things must have come upon you because of some sin, because of some disobedience, because of some error in your ways. Well, let's turn now to today's reading, Job chapter 11. And Zophar is going to build on that same logic, but he's actually going to add another step to it. So in chapter 11, we have Zophar's first speech. And then we'll have Job's response, and that ends the first cycle. But in chapter 11, beginning in verse uh, 13, it says, Yet if you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hands to him, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then you will lift up, then you will lift up your face without shame. You will stand firm and without fear. You will surely forget your trouble, recalling it only as waters gone by. So what next level of advice, counsel, is Zophar giving. He's saying, Job, the key to your healing is repentance. If you simply remove iniquity from your hand, if you simply remove evil doing from your ways, if you once again turn back to the Lord, then your troubles will be behind you, then your troubles will be forgotten. They will be like the waters that pass by in a stream or a brook and quickly are out of sight and out of mind. So Zophar adds to the evaluation of Eliphaz and Bildad. And Zophar says, yes, of course, these things have come upon you, Job, because of some sin on your part. But now the key to healing is not to justify yourself, is not to claim yourself to be righteous, but to repent. Now again, repentance is wonderful advice in most circumstances. We as sinners are called upon daily to repent. It was repentance that brought us into the kingdom of God. That time when we, for the first time, acknowledged our sin and said, Jesus, we need a savior. We need you. We need forgiveness. And so again, this is part of what makes the book of Job so challenging. Is because even in the counsel of the three friends, and remember, what is God's evaluation of their counsel? You did not speak rightly of me. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar did not speak rightly of the Lord. But even in them not speaking rightly of the Lord, there was an incredible amount of truth that seems to align with how God reveals himself. And that's, again, part of what makes the book of Job so challenging. Because if I were to tell you that God is just... What would you say? You'd say, yes, of course. If I were to tell you that God punishes sinners, what would you say? Yes, of course. If I were to tell you that repentance is powerful 
and repentance restores us with God. What would you say? Yes, absolutely. So Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar were not three pagans that were coming out of gross idolatry. They were not three heathens that had no understanding of the God of the universe, that had no understanding of the God who had revealed himself to humanity. In fact, if we go back now and look at some Proverbs, we will see, sorry, flipping the wrong way. If we look now at some Proverbs, and we're just going to read four Proverbs. Proverbs are very short once you get into chapter 10. We're going to read four Proverbs, and we're going to see how it actually would be pretty easy to come up with Eliphaz's and Bildad's and Zophar's evaluation and conclusion. Read with me Proverbs 11, verse 8. Proverbs 11, verse 8. The righteous man is rescued from trouble, and it comes on the wicked instead. Well, what does that say? The righteous people are rescued from trouble, but the wicked people endure trouble. Job, you're enduring a lot of trouble. So somewhere along the line, you must have been or done something wicked. I mean, it's right there, Proverbs 11.8, just as much your Bible as the book of Job. The righteous are rescued from trouble. Instead, it comes upon the wicked. Turn one chapter over. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 21. No harm befalls the righteous, but the wicked have their fill of trouble. It's right there. I'm not making this up. It's exactly what God says is his wisdom. The righteous have no harm befall them. Instead, the wicked have their fill of trouble. Well, Job is having a lot of harm, a lot of trouble befall him. So clearly it is because of his wickedness. Two more from chapter 13. Obviously, we don't have to hunt far to find this principle in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 21. Misfortune pursues the sinner, but prosperity is the reward of the righteous. Misfortune pursues the sinner, but prosperity is the reward of the righteous. And finally, Proverbs chapter 13, verse 25. The righteous eat to their heart's content or till their appetite or their desire is satisfied. The righteous eat till their desire is satisfied. But the stomach of the wicked goes hungry. Now that's one we're going to come back to in a minute. But clearly what you see here is that, that foundational elementary school wisdom that Proverbs establishes. Remember, when we were looking at Proverbs, we said we have to let the Lord establish the foundation of the wisdom of Proverbs in our hearts. 
and some real pillars that have to be immovable and unshakable. God is just in his dealings with humanity. God is just in his dealings with humanity. And the wicked are punished and the righteous are rewarded. That's why we started with Proverbs. Because we have to let the Lord establish those basic principles in our heart. And we cannot let circumstance quickly shake those necessary columns on that necessary foundation. God is just. God is just. And he is just with how he deals with humanity. But of course, what we said we would encounter and what we are now encountering in the book of Job is circumstance that really, really, really puts those principles under intense strain. You know, God didn't have to give us Job. There's a lot of people that lived that we have no idea what their names were because they're not recorded for us in Scripture. God didn't have to give us Ecclesiastes. There's a lot of doubters and skeptics that have lived that we have no idea of their names or what they said. You know, God gave us Job on purpose. God gave us Ecclesiastes on purpose. Not because they're easy. Not because they're pleasant. But because they are necessary. And because God is never going to duck a hard issue. God is never going to duck the tension and strain that this world seems to put him and his promises under. Last week, Ted gave an excellent comment from C.S. Lewis. God is not on the dock. God is not on trial. In fallen humanity, God is on trial. God, if you are just, if you are loving, if you are sovereign, why is there evil in this world? God, it's your fault. God, you could do something about this. You are not. This is your fault. Fallen humanity shaking their angry fist at God. God is not on trial. <laughs> As Job found out in chapter 38. God is not on trial. But God is not even for a moment going to shrink back from the challenges that real life throws on what he declares to be true. He is not going to shrink from that. But one of the things that Job reminds us of is that even though the, 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 the foundational nature of proverbial wisdom is unshakable, the righteous are rewarded, the wicked are punished. One of the things that the book of Job teaches us is you cannot necessarily work that backwards. The righteous are absolutely rewarded, yes and amen. The wicked are absolutely punished, yes and amen. But if you see someone prospering, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are righteous. If you see someone struggling, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are wicked. Again, from human perspective, that would seem so logical because God absolutely says, I am just, and I punish the wicked, and I reward the righteous. So if someone is prospering and doing well, they must be righteous, right? God says, nah, not necessarily. 
If someone is suffering and going through difficulty and hard times, they must be wicked, right? God says, not necessarily. So you see, you've got to have the foundation in place, but now we're, we're, we're moving up in the world. Job is, is, is college. Ecclesiastes is graduate school. Proverbs is, you know, your basic elementary school, maybe high school, GED. But once you get to Job and Ecclesiastes, God says, okay, you're ready for this. You're my son. You're my daughter. You're ready for this. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be pleasant. But you are ready for this. Let's take this on. So one of the things that we are learning from the book of Job is working the wisdom of Proverbs backwards doesn't always work. Yes, God rewards the righteous. Yes, God punishes the wicked. But if you see someone suffering, that doesn't necessarily mean they are wicked. And if you see someone prospering, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are righteous. But this attitude of Job's friends crops up on a somewhat regular basis in the New Testament. So turn with me to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. And you are going to see here the disciples of Jesus making an evaluation of a situation that sounds very similar to Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar. John chapter 9. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You see, this is taking the wisdom of Proverbs, and it is trying to work it backwards. This man has been blind from birth, so obviously either he sinned or his parents sinned. Because he is suffering the calamity of blindness, obviously someone sinned. Obviously, either he sinned or his parents sinned. Now, of course, here, even logic is strained a little bit because he was born blind. So I'm not sure what sin he could have done in the womb that would have brought this upon himself. But you can see the logic that the disciples are using. Here is a man that is clearly suffering because he has been blind from birth. And his suffering must have come from someone's sin. So, Jesus, who sinned, his parents or him? This is the wisdom of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. But look at Jesus' answer in verse 3. Neither. What? You have no idea how much that simple word shocked the ancient world. Neither. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. What? What? Jesus, you're not making any sense. You are saying that this man was born blind, not because his parents sinned, not because that he sinned, which is certainly what we know to be true because we know the book of Proverbs, because we know God is just, because we know God rewards the righteous, and we know God punishes the wicked. But you're telling us that this man was born blind not 
because of his sin or not because of the sin of his parents. You're telling us he was born blind so that God could be glorified. Lord, I'm not sure I have a category for that answer. And believe me, at that moment, the disciples didn't either. You know, we may look, and rightly so, very skeptically at Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar. But if we are not careful, we are right there with them. Remember, they are not heathens. They are not pagans. They're not living out there worshiping idols and having no regard for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They knew God, and I believe, in fact, they loved God. And so we better also learn from the book of Job that we're not that far from Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar if we are not careful. These were Jesus' disciples. I mean, this was his crew. This was his posse. And they were right there with Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. This man was born blind, so clearly he sinned or his parents sinned. And Jesus said, no. No. He was born blind so that God could be glorified. Whoa! That, that is Ph.D. level wisdom. That is not what we would expect. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. We're not going to read all of this account. In Matthew chapter 19, there's a, a young man who's quite wealthy who comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, what good thing must I do to be saved? Jesus says, obey the commandments. The man says, I've done all of these since my birth. Jesus looks at him and says, you know, one thing you lack Sell everything you have, give to the poor, and come follow me. It says, well, the man walked away very sad or downcast because he was incredibly wealthy. So this was a man who was incredibly wealthy. This was a man that had the world on a string. This was a man that had whatever he wanted, had the best that money could buy, had all of the comforts and luxuries that the first century world could offer. Well, picking it up in verse 23. So we are now in Matthew chapter 19, verse 23. It says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, today we would say, yeah, I, I agree with that, because a lot of wealthy people are pretty wicked. A lot of wealthy people really have it out for those who don't. A lot of wealthy people are full of pride, are full of arrogance, are full of all manner of oppression. Yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of wealthy people that, yeah, I agree, Jesus, amen. That camel's getting through, you, through the eye of the needle before this guy gets saved. But look at what the disciples say. Look at what they say. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, then who can be saved? You see, Jesus said it's incredibly difficult for the wealthy to be saved. Now, the disciples at this point don't say, yeah, amen. They were astonished. And they say, Jesus, 
if the wealthy cannot be saved, then who can? Because what was their reasoning? What was their logic? Wealthy people are blessed by God. Wealthy people are blessed by God. So certainly, if they're blessed by God, they're righteous. Wealthy people are righteous. That was their logic. Because God rewards the righteous, God punishes the wicked. So if someone's born blind, then he's punishing the wicked. If someone is wealthy, then he's rewarding the righteous. That's what the disciples were thinking. They looked at the wealthy and they said, wow, these are the most blessed people. These are the people that have more than anyone else on the planet right now. So clearly, they are righteous. They're in. The wealthy are in because they already have the favor of God because they're righteous. So when Jesus says the exact opposite, he's turning things upside down. You see, what Jesus is saying is you cannot reverse the wisdom of Proverbs. You cannot look at people who are suffering in this life and assume they are suffering because they are wicked. You cannot look at people who are prospering in this life and assume they are prospering because they are righteous. You see, Jesus is saying, I'm not, I am not in any way negating the necessary foundation of Proverbs. What I am saying is you cannot reverse it. You cannot reverse it. Just because someone is prospering in this life doesn't mean they are righteous. Just because someone is suffering in this life does not mean they are wicked. Luke chapter 13 this is an account that only occurs in the Gospel of Luke, a fairly unmentioned passage in the ministry of Jesus, but absolutely essential to what we are talking about today. Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. It says, Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. This was an atrocious act by a, a despot leader, Pontius Pilate. Some Jews were making sacrifices and Pilate had them killed and their blood was literally mixed with the blood of the animals they were sacrificing. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Yes, absolutely, of course I do. They got what they deserved, so they must have been sinful. Jesus is asking the question that everyone in his audience would have said, yes, absolutely. They died this awful death because they were worse sinners than everyone else. That's absolutely the logic of Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar. And it's just a hair's breadth away from the necessary wisdom of the book of Proverbs. But then look what Jesus says in verse 3. I tell you, no. They were not worse sinners. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? Yes, of course, because they died this untimely, awful death. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. 
So what is Jesus saying there? Just because an unrepentant sinner dies doesn't mean that you are better than them. You cannot assume that. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying when you look at a circumstance, you cannot necessarily assume the only explanation for that circumstance is working the wisdom of Proverbs backwards. That's what he's saying. So what he is saying is every person who is suffering is not necessarily wicked. Every person who is prospering is not necessarily righteous. One other, because Jesus is going to give us the zinger, and if we don't have the zinger from Jesus, then we're only reading half the story. But in John chapter 5, Jesus goes to a pool and he heals a man who had been crippled for 38 years. And later on, he encounters that man. And we're just going to read one verse. This man had been crippled for 38 years. This man had to be carried on a mat for 38 years. And Jesus instantaneously, miraculously heals him. But as Jesus encounters this man after this healing, look at what he says. Verse 14 of John chapter 5. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. There's the other side. Jesus said you better stop sinning because if you don't, something worse may happen to you. Now look again more closely at Luke 13. Jesus said, yeah, those, those folks who died when Pilate slayed them, those folks who died when the tower fell, they were not worse sinners than you, but you better repent or the same thing will happen to you. So we can't just say that God is completely capricious and fickle and there's no rhyme or reason to his universe. The wicked are punished and the righteous are rewarded. And if you're messing around with sin because you've gotten away with it up to this point, don't assume you're going to get away with it tomorrow. Years ago, there was a speaker at our youth retreat made one of the most profound points I've heard at all of our youth retreats. He said, you can choose the sin, but you cannot choose the consequence. Two guys go to a bar. Both of them get drunk. Both of them get behind the wheel of the car. Both of them drive home. One of them arrives safely. One of them kills somebody and spends 30 years in jail. Same sin. They chose the sin. They didn't choose the consequence. So what is Jesus saying in John 5, 14? What is Jesus saying in Luke 13? Yeah, okay. That guy that hit the person in the car when he was drunk and went to jail for 30 years, he was not a worse sinner than you. But you better stop sinning. Or something worse may happen to you. This stuff is not easy. I'm not giving you this sermon because it's easy. But I think one of the things that we hold on to is that God is just. God knows what he's doing. God knows how to run his universe. God is not on trial. And there are absolutely principles that the word of God establishes for us that have to be 
unshakable. But what the word of God also makes clear is that there are circumstances in life that put the principles of God under incredible strain. Well, at that point, what will you do? Will you shake your fist at God and say, God, you don't know what you're doing? Will you say, God, this is your fault? Will you look and take on the counsel of Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar and have an overly simplistic approach to try to understand a complex circumstance? You see, I think one of the most incredible things that Job challenges us to do is trust God when circumstance seems to indicate that he is untrustworthy. The book of Job says trust God when it looks like he's not in control. Let me take you back 2,000 years. The Messiah had come into the world and for about six hours he was hanging on a cross. At that moment, when the creator of the universe was hanging on a cross, did it look like God was in control? Did it look like God was just? Did it look like God was doing the right thing? When his son was hanging from a Roman cross, did it look like the father was trustworthy? Did it look like he knew what he was doing? Circumstances, they are not our gospel. Circumstances cannot be the ultimate evaluator of truth and falsehood. Because you know, when his son hung on the cross, God was in control. When his son hung on the cross, the father was just. Everything about that circumstance seemed to be speaking the opposite. But God was still in control. God was still good. God was still a father who was trustworthy. Job has taken us to our limits. Because Job is asking us a simple question. Will you trust God when your circumstance seems to indicate that he is untrustworthy? Will you trust God because you know him, because you love him, because you understand he is just and fair and good, even when everything in your life seems to scream the exact opposite? That's the challenge of the book of Job. Let me close with a couple of, of things that have helped me over the years because I think we've got an incredible foundation here of the misapplied biblical truth of Job's three friends. We've certainly seen how from the book of Proverbs how that would be an easy mistake to make. We've seen how that faulty application of biblical truth leaked all the way into the time of Christ's coming and we see Christ clearly correcting that. But a couple of things that really help me. God is just. He punishes the wicked, he rewards the righteous. Point number one, when? When? 
When does God punish the wicked? When does God reward the righteous? You see, all of us are almost to a person wanting immediate reward and immediate retribution. That's just the way we are. That guy cut me off in traffic. I want him to get pulled over right now. We are people that want immediate reward and we want immediate retribution. So we expect that of God. But I would say the answer to the question when is not up to us. It's completely and totally up to God. Sometimes retribution is immediate. I get out a gun and I start shooting people, I get shot and killed. Immediate retribution for my sinful behavior. Sometimes retribution is deferred. I get out a gun, I start to shoot people, and I get away with it. And I take off to some country where there's no extradition and I live to 80. You see, we do not get to answer the question, when? God does. Not all retribution is immediate. Not all reward is immediate. The when is up to God. That's one of the things that helps me as I wrestle through these issues. God is just. He does reward the righteous. He does punish the wicked. When he does that is up to him. So he did punish 18 sinners when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. But they were not worse sinners than those who survived. The when is up to God. The second thing that really helps me with these issues is how. How does God punish the wicked? How does God reward the righteous? Well, let's close by turning to Proverbs 11, chapter 4. One of the most incredible Proverbs that I can, can come across or that I, I can remember in regard to this. Proverbs 11, chapter 4. Wealth is worthless on the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Is wealth really a reward? Is financial security really a blessing? Well, if you're trusting that instead of the Lord, wealth is actually a curse. I didn't see that coming, Lord. Really? Because I always thought if I had just a little bit more money in my bank account, if I had just a little bit nicer car, if I had just a little bit nicer place to stay at night, I would really be blessed. Well, in fact, Proverbs 11.4 turns out completely upside down and says, in fact... In a lot of cases, wealth is a curse because the wealthy trust in their wealth instead of the Lord and on the day of God's wrath, their wealth will not deliver them. So what is a real reward that's worth having? Not material prosperity, but a righteousness that will deliver you in the end. So remember we said, Proverbs 13.25 but the desire, the appetite, the longing of the righteous is fully met. What are you longing for? 
Are you really longing for more money in your bank account? Are you really longing for a nicer car? Are you really longing for a nicer house? You see, I think as righteous people, what we are longing for is far better than that. I'm longing for a greater manifestation of the kingdom of God. I'm longing for God to deal with the sin in my heart. I'm longing to become more like Jesus Christ. I'm longing to see a greater working of his spirit in the city of Philadelphia. Well, what Proverbs 13.25 says is my longing is going to be fully satisfied. When we as Christians are longing for material blessing alone, we're living in the pigsty. Really? Really? And, you know, this is a really, really challenging corruption of the gospel for me because in many ways it led my uncle astray. The health and wealth gospel. If you're a godly person, you will be healthy all the time, you will be wealthy. No! I hate that gospel. I hate that gospel because it denies the truth of God's word. Really? You want to have a mansion instead of seeing a greater manifestation of the glory of God? Really, someone is sick and the only problem is they don't have enough faith? Really? That's what you're trying to shove down my throat? No. That's Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar. I reject that. I reject that wholeheartedly. The desire of the righteous is fully satisfied. But the hunger of the wicked, their belly is empty. What do the wicked desire? More wealth, more prosperity, more power, more recognition. They're hungry, no matter how much they have. They're empty because their desire is corrupt. What is true prosperity? What is true blessing? I believe Proverbs challenges us to reconsider what that is. Because I believe there is something so much greater that God is offering us that we will be fully satisfied. What did Jesus say? Go to the nicest restaurant, drop a couple hundred bucks on a meal and you'll be satisfied? That's the world! That's garbage! Jesus said, eat from the bread that I offer you and you will be satisfied. I guarantee you, you buy the nicest house this world can possibly offer, the nicest car this world can possibly offer. If that's the desire of your heart, you will be empty. That's what Proverbs 13.25 is really saying. You will be empty. But desire Jesus. Desire the riches that he offers forgiveness, peace, hope, joy, righteousness, truth, then you will be fully satisfied. Jesus told the woman at the well, you drink from this, you're going to be thirsty again. You drink from the water I'm offering you. You will never thirst again. There is an insidious teaching within Christianity today, and it's really only in North America, because North America has such incredible prosperity, that if you are godly, you will be healthy and you will be wealthy. And if you are not healthy, and if you are not wealthy, it's your fault. It's your problem. This is the counsel of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And God said, what? You did not speak of me rightly. You did not speak of me rightly. Let me just close by asking a couple questions, and then we're going to pray. What if your sickness... actually makes you more like Jesus? What if your lack actually makes you more dependent on him? 
What if the things that oppose you and make your life difficult help you to realize that you have powerful weapons the Lord has given you? What if? What if the things that the world would call suffering and loss and weakness and defeat are the very things our Father in his infinite wisdom has chosen to give us so that we might actually become more like Christ and grow in our relationship with him? What if? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we realize that as we press into you and we try to understand <laughs> your heart, your mind, your wisdom, your counsel, we are, are swimming in very deep waters. And so, God, may none of us ever, ever be so foolish as to think we've got you all figured out. But, Lord, you have given us your word. And you have called to us. And I, I believe, Lord, you've given us a dare. You've given us a challenge in the book of Proverbs, seek me, seek my wisdom more than anything else. That's what you said. You, you laid the gauntlet down and said, pursue me more than anything else. And so, Father, I hope that each one of us in our own ways is doing that. And, Father, I thank you for the book of Job, not because it's easy, not because it's pleasant, but because it's there and we need it. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to more rightly understand you, more rightly understand your ways. And God, as we are looking at this world in which we live, there are so many times that your goodness and your truth are put under great strain. But I pray, Lord, that ultimately we would never put you on trial. We may not understand everything, but you certainly invite us to understand some and certainly understand better than the world. And so help us, Lord, to speak your words with your heart and your wisdom and your counsel into every life and every circumstance in which we find ourselves. And we pray all of this, Jesus, in your name alone. Amen.